Two, one. Hey guys, welcome back to Jonah. Um, the introduction. This is part two, week two, and let's open in prayer. Father, we just thank you for bringing us back today. We just ask that you would uh, strengthen us um, with your power and wisdom and discernment, and that we would uh, be a changed people because we've opened your word today, Lord. And Father, we pray that you would make it come alive to us. Just make it come alive in what we know not teach us and what we have not give us and what we are not make us. For Jesus' name, amen. Okay. <clears throat> For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. John three sixteen through 17. And remember last week, I told you, we were going to be reading the hymn instead of singing it. Because I think the words are, are very important, and, it's, and they're so applicable to where we are now in our study. This is from uh, Fanny Crosby, and it's called Rescue the Perishing. And I don't even know the tune to it, because I, but I love the, the words to it. Rescue the perishing, care for the dying, snatch them in pity from sin in the grave, weep. Or the erring one, lift up the fallen, tell them of Jesus the mighty to save. Rescue the perishing, care for the dying, Jesus is merciful, Jesus will save. Though they are slighting him, still he is waiting, waiting the penitent child to receive. Plead with them earnestly, plead with them gently, he will forgive if they only believe. Down in the human heart, Crushed by the tempter, feelings lie buried that grace can restore. Touched by a loving heart, wakened by kindness, cords that were broken will vibrate once more. Rescue the perishing, duty demands it. Strength for thy labor the Lord will provide. Back to the narrow way, patiently win them. Tell the poor wanderer a Savior has died. Rescue the perishing, care for the dying. Jesus is merciful. Jesus will save. What then is the message God was seeking to deliver to Israel through his dealings with Jonah and the Ninevites and all the natural phenomena that went down? The sea, the animal life, the plant life, and the wind. What was God's message? First, one apparent message to Israel is God's concern for the Gentile peoples. Hallelujah to that. The Lord's love for the souls of all people was supposed to be mediated through Israel. God's elect and covenant nation, just like it is through us now. Through Israel, the blessing of his compassion was to be preached to the nations. Isaiah 49, 3 tells us, he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. <clears throat> and in Genesis, he covenanted it with Abraham. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Genesis 12, 1-3. The book of Jonah was a reminder to Israel of her missionary purpose. I wonder if we need reminding of that. 
It should be a reminder to us. Jesus tells us in Matthew, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Paul adds in Romans, How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Second, the book demonstrates the sovereignty of God in accomplishing his purposes. God is sovereign in all things. Through Israel, though, though Israel was unfaithful in its missionary task, God was faithful. God was faithful in causing his love to be proclaimed. Any old rock will do. Like Jesus said, if, you, if they aren't praising me, he would make the rocks cry out and praise me. In praise to God for miraculously delivering him, Jonah confessed salvation or deliverance comes from the Lord. In Jonah 2.9, Israel had failed to proclaim God's mercies. <clears throat> but, his, God's, um, well, did I miss the page? No. But his work gets done in spite of human weakness. God's work always gets done in spite of human weakness and in spite of human perfections. God's work will always be done. God confirms this in Isaiah. In Isaiah 46, 10 through 11, I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what's yet to come. I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. From the east I summon a bird of prey. From a far off land, a man to fulfill my purpose. What I have said, that I will bring about. What I have planned, that will I do. Third, the response of the Gentiles served as a message of rebuke to God's sinful nation, Israel. The spiritual insight of the mariners in Jonah 1, 14-16, and their concern for the Jewish prophet, contrasts starkly with Israel's lack of concern for the Gentile nations. I mean, they were terrified to throw him overboard. Jonah's spiritual hardness illustrated and rebuked Israel's callousness. Nineveh's rep repentance contrasted sharply with Israel's rejection of the warnings of Jonah's contemporaries, Hosea and Amos. Remember, Jesus described exactly the same thing when he was talking to the Pharisees regarding the hardness of their hearts in Matthew and Luke. He answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asked for miraculous signs, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh, of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now one is greater than Jonah is here. I love what Psalm 1 says is, The wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Fourth, Jonah was a symbol to Israel. 
of her disobedience to God and indifference to the religious plight of other nations. They simply didn't care. Do we find ourselves in that same situation? Do we care about the lost? Or as Fanny Crosby was saying, do we rescue the perishing? Do we care for the dying? Do we tell them that Jesus is mighty to save? Hosea's Jonah's contemporary graphically portrayed an unending love for, of God for his people by loving a prostitute in Hosea, which was symbol of Israel's religious waywardness. Similarly, Jonah symbolized Israel by his disobedience and disaffection. That's the whole country was the way Jonah felt. They were disobedient and they were disaffection, disaffection for other people. God's punishment of Jonah shows his wrath on Israel. Yet the Lord's gentle, miraculous dealings with Jonah also picture his tender love and slowness to anger with the nations. As Jonah wrote the book from a repentant heart, God desired that the nation would heed the lesson Jonah learned and repent as Jonah and Nineveh had done. As Peter tells us in 2 Peter 3, 8 and 9, but do not forget this one thing. Dear friends, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And Paul echoes this in 1 Timothy. I urge them, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God, our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. And for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying and a teacher of the true faith to the Gentiles. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 7. The words not wanting anyone to perish in 2 Peter 3, 9 do not express a decree as if God has willed everyone to be saved. Universal salvation is not taught in the Bible. While his desire is for the entire human race to come to the, know the truth through a personal relationship with his son, Jesus Christ, he knows that many will reject him. The book of Jonah seals the point of God's amazing compassion toward all men. To experience the grace of God and not be willing to tell others of his compassion is a tragedy we must all avoid. Messengers of God can neither limit the grace of God nor control its distribution, but they can prevent God's grace from having an effect on their own lives. This lesson we dare not miss. God expects our compassion to encompass everyone, especially our enemies. Not easy. Such compassion is more than a feeling of goodwill and in the absence of anger, such compassion calls for commitment. Such compassion seeks God's call to share his salvation with all sinners, the pagan, the enemy, the untouchable. 
the hated, the feared, the socially superior, the socially inferior. Should God not be concerned about the great cities of the world that teem with pagan people who are pagan because we have not let them hear the gospel message? If God is concerned for them, should we not be so as well? The Apostle Paul sets forth our example in 1 Corinthians 9, 19-23. Though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I become like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I become like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I become like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under God's Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I become weak. To win, to win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that all by all possible means I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. Oh, it's Spurgeon writes, that I had a trumpet voice to warn you. Oh, while you were dying, while you were sinking into perdition, may I not cry to you? May not these eyes weep for you? Take to heart, I beseech you, the realities of eternity. Oh, turn, turn, why will you die? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. I'm going to close with John Bloom's article, Satan will sing you to sleep by waking up from spiritual indifference. Waking up from spiritual indifference. Satan seeks to sing us to sleep. It's written by John Bloom. You don't tell people about Jesus because you don't care about their eternal state. His assertion stung but I knew it was true. Confronted with the way he lives for the lost, its truth was as obvious to me as the nose on my face. And like the nose on my face, I wasn't paying much attention to it until he called it out. But unlike the nose on my face, his assertion was etern has eternal significance. I recently met this remarkable man while traveling in the Middle East. He, along with his wife, is leading a rapidly growing movement of Muslims turning to Christ in a very restrictive part of the Islamic world. I had the great and exposing privilege of spending hours with him. I wish I could tell you more about his ministry, how Jesus called him, and the incredible ways the Lord uniquely prepared him to make disciples and plant churches in a very dangerous place. His story is worth a book someday. For now, I will spare the details, lest in any way I should expose him. I must pass along something he shared with me, though, because he, we all might be ignoring the obvious, like my, the nose on my face, which is not that obvious. And it is that obvious, I mean. And the <clears throat> eternal, eternally significant nose on our collective Western Christian faces to our own spiritual detriment for sure, but also to the spiritual catastrophe of those around us. What could happen to them? My new friend lives in an Islamic country where sharing the gospel, if you're caught, will get you thrown into prison and likely tortured to extract information about other Christians. 
Yet he and his wife are daily, diligently seeking to share the gospel with others because they want to share with them its blessing and its blessings, even more than they want their own survival. Wow. Each morning, when this husband and wife part ways, they acknowledge to one another that it might be the last time they see each other. She knows if caught, part of her torture will almost assuredly include rape, probably repeatedly. He knows if caught, brutal things await him before a likely execution. For to them to live is Christ and to die is gain. Yet each day they prayerfully pursue the spirit of, for Jesus' direction in order to show the lost the way of salvation. And they are equipping other Christians to do the same. They are wholly dependent upon God. When I say prayerfully, I mean prayerfully. They and their fellow leaders spend a minimum of four hours a day in prayer and in God's word and frequently fast for extended periods before they go out seeking souls. They do this because they need to do this. Spiritual strongholds do not give way and conversions don't happen unless they do this. One wrong move and the whole network of believers could be exposed. So they depend on the Holy Spirit to specifically lead them to people the Spirit has prepared for them. The doctrine of election is not some abstract theological controversy for seminary students to debate. They see it played out in front of them day after day. The sensationism and continualism debate is also a most a mute issue for them. They regularly see the Holy Spirit do things we read about in the book of Acts. As my friend described the Spirit's activity where he lives, it was clear that all the revelatory and miraculous spiritual gifts listed in 1 Corinthians 12-14 through 14 are a normal part of life for these believers because they really need them. They are not debating Christian hedonism either. When you live under the threat of death daily, either life is Christ and death is gain to you, or you will not last. So I learned that my friend has translated John Piper's original sermon series on Christian hedonism into his native language and used them as a part of his core theological curriculum for believers. Lulled by an evil lullaby. All those things were wonderfully and encouraging as well as convicting to hear. But then he told me a very disturbing story. A number of years ago, this man and his wife were given the opportunity to move to the States. And they did. After living here for a period of time, however, the wife began to plead with her husband that they move back to their Islamic country of origin. Why, she, she told him, it's like a satanic lullaby playing here. And the Christians are asleep. And I feel like I'm falling asleep. Please, let's go back, which they did. God be praised. This story contains an urgent message we must all hear. She wanted to go back to a dangerous environment to escape what she recognized as a greater danger to her faith, to her spiritual lethargy and indifference. This should stop us in our tracks. Do we recognize this as a serious danger? How spiritually sleepy are we? According to my new friend, we can gauge our sleepiness by how the eternal states of non-Christians around us shape the way we approach life. Judging by the general behavior of Christians in the West, it's clear 
to my friend that as a whole, we can all point to remarkable exceptions, of course, that we don't care much about people's eternal states. Are we content to sleep? My friend and his wife write, there's a satanic lullaby playing even in churches across the West. Why else are we so lethargic in the midst of such relative freedom and unprecedented prosperity? Where is our collective Christian sense of urgency? Where are the tears over the perishing? Where is the groaning? Where is the fasting and the prevailing intercession for those we love and those we live near and those we work with, not to mention the unreached of the world who have no meaningful gospel witness among them? Paul had great sorrow and unceasing anguish of heart over the unbelieving Jewish kinsmen he had. Do we feel anything like that? And Paul's spirit-inspired urgency to bring the gospel to the lost shaped his whole approach to life. As he says in 1 Corinthians, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessing. What is shaping our approach to life? If we think that kind of mentality is only for someone with a possible Paul's apostolic calling, all we need to do is keep reading. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27 is clear that Paul means for us to run our unique faith races with the same kind of kingdom-focused mentality. If we're not feeling anguish over people's eternal state and ordering our lives around praying for and trying to find ways to bring the gospel to them, we are being lulled to sleep by the devil's soothing strains. It's time to start fasting and praying and pleading with God and one another to wake up. Now is the time. It matters not if we call ourselves Calvinists and believe we have an accurate knowledge of the doctrine of election if our knowledge does not lead us to feel anguish in our hearts over the lost and resolve to do whatever it takes to save some. We do not yet know what we ought to know. There's a paraphrase from 1 Corinthians 8.2. What we need is to cultivate Paul's heart for the lost. My com conversation with this new friend showed me that Calvinist though I am, I do not yet know as I ought to know. But Father, I want to know as I ought to know. I repent of all the lethargy and indifference. I, I will not remain sleepy anymore when it comes to the eternal states of the unbelieving family and friends and neighbors and restaurant servers and checkout clerks that are around me all the time. According to Jesus in his parable of the ten virgins, spiritual sleepiness is very, very dangerous. We need to get more oil now. There isn't much time. I want to be done with satanic sleepiness and cultivate the resolve that led Charles Spurgeon, that unashamed Calvinist, to say, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions. And let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. Father, in Jesus' name, increase my anguish over perishing believers, unbelievers and my urgent resolve to become all things to all people that by all means I might save some.
Father, I just pray you would give us such a firm resolve that you would help us to rescue the perishing, care for the dying. Tell them that Jesus is mighty to save, Lord. And I pray, Father, you would do it through your power in us because that's the only way it will be done. Change their hearts, Lord. Strengthen our resolve, Lord. Help us not to be sleepy, Lord, in such a time as this. And I ask this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Love that John Blaney. Thank you. I know. He's so good. <laughs>